Meanwhile, back at the Hall of Justice, our mild-mannered podcasters were bombarded by gamma rays, bitten by radioactive bugs, mutated by toxic waste, irradiated with cosmic rays, born into a world that doesn't understand them. First issue. everybody and welcome back to Talking Comics second annual Woman in Comics week. First off, joining us to kick off this Women in Comics week is Dr. Andrea Letamendi, creator and writer of the site Under the Mask. She is a clinical psychologist who dissects the inner lives of superheroes. Andrea, thank you so much for joining us on Talking Comics. Sure. Thank you guys for chatting with me. Oh, of course. We're, we're very, very happy to have you here. So, you know, why don't you start out just by telling people if they don't know who you are, you know, what it is you do and how you you got into examining superheroes in this kind of way? Sure. Well, I have a PhD in clinical psychology. And in the last few years, I've really become interested in um, talking about psychological themes in narratives in um, comic books, science fiction, and fantasy. And so what I do now is that I, you know, I do the convention circuit. Um, I talk at various universities. I have, of course, a blog. And, um, you know, I, I discuss psychological themes in comic books in order to increase awareness and knowledge of psychology um, to kind of reduce the stigma and misconceptions associated with mental health problems and to kind of bring um, what I would consider like a safe um, place, you know, a a safe discussion to talk about some of these serious themes. Um, Again, in order to not just educate people, but also to kind of do it in a way that people find entertaining and intriguing and, and hopefully um hopefully fun mm-hmm. absolutely and, and it definitely is it definitely is it's sorry it's under the mask online.com is mm-hmm. where uh you do your uh your work uh so one of the things i wanted to point out real quick and i point out talk about is uh, uh the uh the fake geek girls uh so that you have addressed uh on your site in, in a and it's a great it's a great piece um it's something that you know was brought to uh, my attention uh, a few months ago, and I wrote an article about the subject as well. But it's, I mean, yours is, is goes into psychological stuff that I never would have even dreamt of being able to to pick apart. But um, have you know you wrote this article a little while ago? Have you have you gotten a big response from it? It's so funny. I think this this fake geek girl kind of theme. Um, comes in waves, you know, mm-hmm. like when this first became kind of, um, you know, a discussion, like, you know, there were complaints from both ends, there were some serious accusations, there were comic book creators and people in the industry um, making very, very harsh claims um, and opinions about women in the geek community, in the comic book community. And there was this reaction from both men and women within the community, you know, just sort of taking a stand and saying, like, look, 
you know, this fake geek girl idea is offensive and insulting, and uh, it might be there might be some kernel of truth in it. But here, what here is our strong reaction and, and the repercussions of of this you know accusation. And I think it was like fall winter of last year that this you know the first kind of big wave, um, at least recently happened where you know we all started to kind of write about this and and discuss this and then i don't know something happened and uh, you know i wouldn't say we stopped talking about it but it wasn't as heated and then i want to say in the last month i don't know if it's because comic con is you know it's comic con season um but it's become uh again another like it seems like another wave of accusations and defensiveness and you know this this debate is is here again and it's like it won't die mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah I, <laughs> I don't know maybe it's are you guys are you guys feeling that this is kind of coming in episodes or waves or is it just I, me i think so too i agree with you because i think one of those one of the big things about fake geek girls is cosplay and of course because of you know the con season cosplay is obviously really an extra big thing going on right now, and people just love to pick on cosplayers. Yeah, and I mean, you cosplay yourself, right? I do. So I mean, you kind of have the perspective as a cosplayer and outside of it, and it just seems like people just don't know how to let that geekdom just be fun and enjoyable. And ugh. yeah, I, I I recently have asked people, especially people who kind of feel um, negatively toward cosplayers or feel like they're taking over the convention or I ask people can you imagine a convention imagine comic-con let's say without any cosplay without mm-hmm. any booth babes without any um, costume wear whether it's um, you know sort of the um, quick kind of mask or um, makeup or the elaborate you know um, costumes if you can imagine the convention without any of that, like what kind of experience would that be for you? How different would that be? And kind of, I, I guess what I want to do is really celebrate and um, champion cosplaying as being like a huge essential component of the convention experience and that we should stop attacking it because it is something hugely important to the cultural experience of a convention. Well, it's Bob here, Andrea. As you pointed out on your site, it, it's the act of cosplaying itself and adding the costumes and accessories that really break down those social differences and barriers. It brings people together, or at least it should. Mm-hmm. It does. I mean, something that I've done um, with a colleague of mine, Dr. Rosenberg, is that we have been um, surveying and collecting all this data on cosplayers. Um, and when I say data, um, you know, I hate that word, but at, by training, I'm a scientist. And, and what that really means is that we're asking some important questions about cosplay behavior, cosplay attitudes and preferences. And we have over a thousand participants in this study. And um, we're actually asking important questions like, you know, what is the cosplay experience and what guides them and drives them to cosplay? And um, something that I've always believed is that the cosplay community, you know, I'm a part of it, but the cosplay community is so diverse and so just, you know, uh, variable that you can't simply say cosplayers are like this or cosplayers, you know, have this 
psychological component or cosplayers are all looking for attention or they all, you know, want to be sexy cosplayers. Like, you can't make those claims anymore because it's such a, a diverse um, community. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And this whole, the whole fake geek girl thing just seems to me to propose that there's like a some kind of gatekeeper that gets to decide, you know, that gets to tick off, you know, your punch card to say, okay, you've done this, this, and this, so now you belong here, which seems to be the exact thing that, you know, was done to these people when yeah, they were younger. Yeah, wasn't the geek community, like, king of the outcasts yeah, at some point, yeah. and now we're outcasting our own? Yeah, so uh, it, it, it's kind of inherent in the, every way they think, because you think about anything, it's... It's very resistant to change. You, like when you change characters and stories, they like they react kind of the same way. Is that something inherent in kind of the the culture that we participate in? I I, I think that what you're saying is um, is somewhat accurate um, and very insightful. In that we have to kind of take a look at ourselves and think about why we're reacting this way, um, why we have such the strong emotional defensive reaction. And in my article, I do talk about why the threat of the imposter um, or what I call, um, you know, the person that falsifies fandom, why that imposter is so um, threatening to us. And um, I mentioned actually like a list of things that, that, that I think um, is responsible for that emotional uh, reaction. Um, one would be the idea that we have limited resources. So I think that we kind of did this to ourselves, right? Like, I don't know about you guys, but as a kid, I was a collector of, um, of figures and toys and, um, you know, other collectibles. And so, you know, we, we live in a culture of things like exclusive, mint condition, you know, collectible. We sort of have grown up uh, with this idea that we have limited resources. And so the notion of someone coming into, you know, our community and possibly taking those resources away when they don't deserve, you mm. know, to have <laughs> those things is incredibly, uh, it's like an attack on, on our stuff, right? Mm. Um, I also say that we have this false sense of ownership. And I think that's um, what what you're mentioning, you know, when you say about this gatekeeper that, you know, we have the tangible products and we are part of this exclusive group and, you know, I've got laminated cards and serial numbers and, you know, fan club um, uh, membership that tells me that I'm a part of, of these groups or whatever. But those are all, um, I, I think they're, they just represent membership, right? Like there's, there's no tangible, um, you know, criterion that allows you to be into the community. And so what happens is that we get really resentful of, of um, you know, other people coming into our community and, and trying to stake their claim, whether they're authentic or not, which I think is really important because mm. I, I will admit that maybe some people are inauthentic and that maybe they have something to gain. But a lot of people are, are very authentic and, and have every right to be here. And, um, and I, I, do, I do think that we... Um, most of us, maybe I, should, I shouldn't generalize, but I think most of us are very, very good at knowing how to hurt other people's feelings and knowing how to exclude others and knowing exactly where to hit because that's how we were treated. So, you know, it's sort of like this, this defensiveness and this protective kind of reaction um, that we're really, really good at. Um, we're like expert bullies because we've experienced it ourselves. And so that's why I sort of say... 
you know, while some of these accusations are really hurtful, we have to think about how what we're doing to each other and how we might be kind of perpetuating uh, this whole kind of uh, inauthentic uh, fandom stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's amazing that people people would even begin to think that they're able to pass judgment on somebody else's passion for something and right. to, to call them out without knowing them and to tell them that you're not a part of this community, you're not a proper fan of something, that it's it's something that without due research, you could never possibly know. And it just amounts to accusations being thrown here, there, and everywhere and causes problems within the community as a whole. And I, right. just, I, I can't understand where people are coming from with that. Every time I hear it, it really, like, it, it hurts my feelings, and I don't cosplay, but I, I feel for the other people that do because I've seen I've seen some really incredible people do some you know incredible artistry with their costumes, the dedication they put into it, and the sense of community, especially the people that cosplay in groups. And you sometimes see like twenty, thirty people from something like an MMO game online, and they're all doing like uh, choreographed dance sequences. They all plan the stuff ahead of time. There's like a demon horde of like 16 teenagers all dressed as the same thing. And <laughs> it's just, it's amazing. And it looks fun. But people, people love to get down on them for it. And I just, yeah. it's, it's really, it's sad. Mm -hmm. That's my two cents. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, Andrea, as you point out, you know, we, we, maybe because we were bullied, we, we have that knife with us. And you describe it as microaggressions. It's those little sort of snide remarks. It's a compliment with a knife within it. You know, you know a lot about Batman for a girl kind of thing where, we, you know, we, yeah. we exclude and negate with those sort of things. And those messages say, you know, you don't belong. And as you pointed out, the recipient of that message gets that hurt. But the person giving it out almost thinks they're doing, wow, I just complimented her. Right. It's, I mean, it's such a subtle thing. And it's really hard you know, that's why I always say there are um, two sides to this and that there's an interaction effect. And, you know, when you say microaggression, um, you're right. What it is, what those are, are the seemingly harmless comments and the sarcasm and the jokes and, you know, again, the subtle exchanges. Um, I make a distinction between those microaggressions and then something more threatening and accusatory, like um, physically touching a cosplayer inappropriately or mm -hmm. calling a cosplayer, you know, demeaning name. You know, that's an aggression, right? That's a verbal or physical aggression. Sure. Um, microaggressions are, I think, um, what's really um, very harmful in the sense that, like you're saying, they seem like compliments or they seem harmless. But what happens is that they actually are quite... Um, they're quite derogatory and they're very marginalizing and they actually perpetuate the idea that, you know, for instance, women don't belong in this community. So I give examples like, um, like the one you said, you know, you sure know a lot about comics for a girl or, you know, are you at this, are you at Comic-Con because your boyfriend brought you here? Oh. Or do you, you know, um, recently I was at um, a comic book shop and I was getting a, a Batman action figure and the person, it was actually another girl behind me, said, are you buying that for your son? And um, it was a, a very honest, getting to know you, um, information gathering kind of question. I think that she was actually just trying to start a conversation. And 
my defensiveness and my um, feelings of of just um, just feeling invalidated. Like, why why do does this have to be? You know, why does my involvement in the geek community have to be because of some male person, my father, my brother, my son, um, my boyfriend, my husband, right? So while folks may think that these comments are um, harmless, they are they actually are invalidating and that they can be, um, you know, extremely marginalizing and just reminding us that we don't belong here. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Stephanie, let me uh, throw it to you. Yeah, I just want to kind of bring it back to some comics and stuff. I mean, you spend a lot of time sort of dissecting the comics and the characters. But for you, what are key elements to a well-written character? Uh, A well-written character, I think psychologically, they would have to be complex. Um, And so what I mean by that is, of course, superheroes have, um, by definition, they have superhuman powers or superhuman abilities and they typically have aspects or characteristics that we strive for that we don't have but I really like it when a character who is intended to be you know a superhero also has um, some fundamental deficits or flaws so characters like Batman of course characters like Wolverine Um, I would even say Superman when referring to the most recent film um, Man of Steel um, and I know that this film was particularly um, dividing in terms of, of the fans, in terms of the you know comic community, but I found those flaws and those faults as a way that I actually could relate to the character better and understand his development you know, uh, into Superman, because this was an origin story, so it was intended to kind of tell us how he got from A to B. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in terms of the Superman movie, I mean, he just takes a much darker turn. And I think you wrote a really great article about the whole thing and brought up, like, a lot of points that I didn't see after seeing the movie twice. And it it was a really interesting perspective um, to read about. And actually, anyone who hasn't read it, we will post a link to it. But you should all check it out. It's a really great read. Um, I got a question. Mm-hmm. Um, Drea, um, who do you feel is uh, some? Who are some of your most compelling uh, villains of the comic book universe? Like, who do you think have the most to offer, uh, like psychologically? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I I don't know if it's just due to feeling nostalgic about them, but I do think Gotham's, um, you know, villains especially the Joker, are um, incredibly fascinating and complex and offer a whole lot when it comes to the development of, um, you know, of evil, if I, if I can put it that way. Right. Um, and there are a lot of, um, now I'm actually a huge fan of, um, of the, like, the, the comics where, like, Arkham Asylum, it, I think they're called Joker's Asylum or yeah. Arkham's, Arkham's Asylum, and they'll just profile one of those villains Mm-hmm. And um, they've done this for, of course, the Joker, Killer Croc, the Penguin, um, and Mad Hatter. And, and what they'll do is, like, really kind of go back and, and tell you um, an interesting story about their development and what brought them to, you know, the point where, where they're at, where they're really destructive, pathological murderers, you know, violent killers. And um, I think it's just a really a fascinating um, 
you know, set of what I would call like conceptualizations, like these interesting stories and backgrounds to kind of let you understand that, you know, you don't just suddenly wake up one day and decide to be evil, that there are usually some developmental reasons, some environmental and um, situational reasons why these villains are, are the way they are. Right. I actually, um, for the website last year, I did a couple of the reviews for the Penguin. Um, was it Pain and Prejudice? Yes. I saw that you, you I, I read your article on that today. And uh, just to throw it out there really quick for a suggestion for you, if you've never read Scarecrow Year One, uh, definitely, definitely check it out. But back to the Penguin. The Penguin is, in as far as in my experience, people kind of laugh at the Penguin a little bit. They think he's kind of one of Batman's sillier villains. And after reading Pain and Prejudice myself and enjoying it, and then reading your take on it, it kind of made that like like even deeper for me. And I just think it's really fascinating that you, you chose him to focus on and that you extracted as much as you could out of that character. It's quite fascinating. He is, uh, for some reason, I totally agree with you. People think that he's silly or that he's one-dimensional, um, but he's so evil. I mean, some of the things that he does, he's very vile. He's very gruesome. Mm-hmm. Um, and and then you you read something like this, um, the Pain and Prejudice series, and um, it's heartbreaking. It, it you really do you know it doesn't justify what he does. It doesn't justify his violence, but it gives you this again this kind of background and this understanding that. Why, why wouldn't he be like this? It's sort of saying he has the environment he grew up in, you know, as a child, the way that people treated him, you know, because of what he looked like and because of the way, you know, his, his relationship with, with animals and not with people, that he, it's almost like he doesn't have another choice. That's, that's, um, that his worldview is justifiable. So, um, yeah, I totally agree that people overlook him and, yeah. and misunderstand him. Cool. All right. I'll, um, I'll send you a tweet or something for a link to the Scarecrow. Maybe check it out one time. I think you'll enjoy it. Um, yeah. oh, go ahead. So I know you must talk about it a lot, um, but for our listeners who don't, aren't familiar with your work, you consulted with Gail Simone for Batgirl. Um, right. How did you get involved with that? Like, did you approach Gail? Did Gail approach you? How did that come to be? I, I really do credit um, our, you know, I do, I do have to say our, you know, um, online community, our network of of uh, Twitter and um, other social media where, you know, especially with female creators and female fans that there are a lot of us, but a lot of times it does feel like, like we aren't, you know, we don't have a lot, um, a lot of support. Um, but there are a lot of us, and I think that, you know, throughout the community, we sort of um, naturally kind of just uh, was able to, we were able to connect. And um, I want to say a couple of years ago, I connected with her and I reached out, and um, what I wanted to do was um, was speak with her on a panel, which that ended up not not really panning out, but um, it was actually Jill Pantosi that connected us and um, you know, started a dialogue with us and, um, and Gail had said, you know, she was unable to, to see me at a convention, but had said she had some questions for me. And we then started to exchange, um, emails and, and she had some really great questions about psychology, specifically about how Barbara Gordon would, um, interact with a psychologist, 
um, to help her to process the psychological trauma that resulted from um, having been shot by the Joker. And so I knew that she was going to be writing about this very pivotal, important part in Barbara's life where she would be um, regularly, routinely going to therapy and, and receiving this, this treatment. Um, I, I wasn't so sure about who that doctor would be. And I, I think that, you know, of course, uh, Gail had hinted that, that that would be me, but I, I really never believed that until uh, issue number 16 of Batgirl came out and my name was there in the comic book and, and I was drawn in as a character. And, um, and it, I still am, it's difficult for me to talk about because I still am wrapping my, my brain around it. And the, the, mm -hmm. I guess the best thing, I, I, the best way I can explain it is that like the 12 year old uh, Batman fan in me is, is freaking out because, you know, <laughs> there I am in, in, you know, part of Canon in Gotham city, um, working as a psychologist, which is incredibly dangerous. I'm not sure, that, that, I'm not sure I'm going to last too long, but, um, but it's an incredible honor and, um, not just for me personally, but I, I think that it's bigger than me in the sense that we have this like very accurate, um, respectable representation of mental health care, which doesn't always happen in comic books um, or in, in, you know, in many fictional um, media. And I just think that it was, um, you know, a, a very nice nod to the mental health community um, to write that in. Mm, absolutely. Bob? Uh, well, as Barbara Gordon's therapist, um, I guess it would be she has survivor's guilt. Has that lessened due to the good work she's doing for Gotham, or is that actually heightening her insecurities about what the job is she has to do? I think that is a complicated experience. You know, um, she at sometimes feels like she's unable to fulfill her role because of how, um, how traumatic that was for her. Um, she's always going to live with the fear that he could come back and get her. And in fact, in um, Death of the Family, which is, you know, the series with Nightwing and, and Batgirl and, and, uh, and uh, the Batman titles. Um, in that series, the Joker comes after everybody again and, um, and terrorizes them in, in ways that he's done before. And I think, you know, that's when she, again, is wrestling with, with the idea of uh, the fear again of what could happen if he attacks her and is she going to survive it, not just physically, but psychologically. And so I think that it's, um, it's, it's this fight that she has with herself, right? I, I must do this job because um, I can't do anything else. This is what I'm, I'm here to do. But every time that I put on this cape, I, I feel the sense of threat and I feel the sense that, that I you know, may experience similar traumas again and what will happen to me psychologically if I do that. And I think that's a very realistic writing of, um, of a superhero. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Like, absolutely. how do you go about dissecting them? I mean, is it something where, I mean, you're not actually sitting down with these characters, but do you sit down and write everything? I do. <laughs> I, do. I stick the action figure right in front of me <laughs> and I just stare. <laughs> I just try to get in the mind of the, the little action figure. Um, I don't know. I, you know, I have to be honest. Um, I can't not do it. it. It's just part of part of the way that I think. And it's because I love 
comic books so much is because I love superheroes so much that I, um, I'm always analyzing and dissecting them and, and thinking about their motivations and their fears and their worries and, and what it's like to be them. Um, I, I did, uh, for a while, I used to treat soldiers who have returned from Iraq and Afghanistan with um, both physical and psychological injuries. And I think that when I, when I try to understand superheroes, I look back to the time that I worked with veterans and soldiers um, when I, you know, of course, I've, I've never been deployed. I have never been in combat. So understanding their experiences was also very challenging for me. But it's, um, it's from those very realistic experiences that I can, that I can understand uh, the life-threatening and exciting experiences of superheroes. Mm-hmm. As someone who dissects these heroes and especially seems very interested in the, the Bat universe, you know, uh, Batman is a character that that psychologically gets discussed probably more than may, probably mm-hmm. any other, maybe any other character in modern fiction is what makes Batman Batman. And how do you see the the psychology of Batman? Um, if you notice, I have not written about Bruce Wayne mm-hmm. or Batman, and I think it's just that once once I start to do that. Um, it will be very personal for me because Batman is the first character that I came to love, you know, as a child. So um, it seems intuitive that I would, you know, by now I would have analyzed Batman, but I have <laughs> not. Um, and I think that it's because he, you know, one of the things that I think draws uh, us to him is that he is very complex psychologically and we do worry about him and we do wonder how well he, you know, how, I guess, damaged uh, he is. And at each step, you know, with each iteration, with each writing of this character, you know, especially in the last uh, last 10 years, um, we worry about him. And, um, and I think there's lots to say about him. But one thing's for sure, at least in my mind, is that we can't just simply say, you know, he's he's psychologically, um, you know, that he has a psychological problem or that he has this particular deficit. I think that it's more complicated than that. I think that he has incredible strength, incredible resiliency, and is absolutely healthy in some ways. And then in some other ways, um, he is, he's suffered a lot. And he, um, you know, again, he has, he has a, a complex psychological um, makeup. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see a lot of different writers talking about in different ways. You know, some writers say he's arrested development. He's the kid that watches parents mm-hmm. die. Yeah, it's and Denny O'Neill's yeah, idea. Yeah, and he's yeah. still, you know, he's still stuck in that area. You, you people who write him as, as sort of like he's psychotic, you know, that you have to be psychotic to, to put that mask on. And he's, ang- he's angry a lot of the time. And then there's someone like Grant Morrison who says, look, this guy has gone through every bit of martial art and Buddhist training he could possibly do. He would be the opposite of out of control and angry. You know, he'd be the calmest person you ever met in your entire life. Right. I'd be crazy to put on Batman's yeah. outfit. Bruce Wayne isn't necessarily. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it's it's fascinating. And that's great to hear someone who is in your field talk about it in that way, the same way that, you know, people are just, you know, buying comics every day talk about it. So Of course, the Joker is still insane, right? Yes. <laughs> he is. He is. Um, okay. I I think that he is also another complicated, you know, like I, I I've talked about the Penguin and I've talked about other... Um, other villains that I, I 
the conceptualization, at least in my mind, is um, is linear and, and simplistic. But with the Joker, um, there's there's a lot of complexity there too. And I think one of the most pathological, um, I guess, characteristics for him is that he's unpredictable. We mm. really don't know what he he'll do, and um, and I think that is is what what really you know makes him a good villain. Mm-hmm. Is a perfect foil for someone like Batman who plans every step ahead yes. to have someone yeah. who's unpredictable. It's the exact right foil for him, Steve. Um, yeah, the, actually, I'm glad that we're talking about the Joker because this just popped into my head. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the relationship between Harley Quinn and the Joker. Like, they're just their, their whole chemistry together, the abusive nature of the relationship. Have you ever given any thought to the way that they interact with one another? I have. Um, in, in the early 90s, um, I thought of them as, um, you know, Bonnie and Clyde, like very sort of like partners. And um, her story, I think, is um, a very brilliant <laughs> story and a fascinating story because she, you know, she was a psychiatry intern in Arkham Asylum and meets him and analyzes him and has these face-to-face um, you know, she has a face-to-face intake with him and um, is just captivated. And then she just um, it completely goes to villainy. And I think that's a, I think that's a, a fantastic story. Now, in the last um, you know the last five ten years or so, we're we're now understanding and seeing their relationship as a bit more abusive. And I think that. I think that that's probably accurate. You know, there are times where, um, where she sticks up for herself and she's very independent and strong and she, um, sort of, you know, again, independently makes decisions and enacts, you know, these, these, uh, her own violent, um, destructive, uh, tendencies. And then, and then there are times where she kind of falls back into this abusive relationship with him. And, um, and I, you know, I've, I think I have some dissonance with that. Like, I really do like this character and I think that she's, um, she's a, a great part of, of, uh, Gotham City as far as the villains go. And I think that their relationship is one that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. And it's probably what you're saying, that there are some abusive kind of characteristics about it. Well, I think I'm, I'm thinking back to the, uh, Death in the Family with that whole thing where they they retold well that was an um, i'm sorry suicide squad they tried to retool her origin a little bit but then we had the death in the family arc with the the joker kind of holding her captive and basically keeping her in the dark and making her believe all of these things and then revealing to her that it was all a lie that it was all just one big joke for him and uh yeah. I mean, there. She's one of my favorite characters in the Batman universe, if not my favorite. Uh, I just there was such a they took such a dark turn, and I don't know how how closely you're following the character, but now it seems since the Suicide Squad has been revamped with uh, Alesh Kot and Patrick Zercher taking over, that she's far more independent from him than she's ever been, or 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 has been in a long time. And I'm I'm curious to see if she'll flourish as a character with him out of the picture. Yeah, I, and I think she will. I mean, that was a very um, a very hard uh, 
you know, very heart-wrenching scene with, you know, sort of not just uh, holding her captive and, and threatening her life, but minimizing their relationship and essentially saying that, you know, that didn't exist. Right. And that, I think that's a turning point for her. And um, I, I also think that she's a strong enough character to, you know, to really exist on her own without that connection to him. Very cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just staying in the Bat universe, what about uh, the relationship with Selena and the, the Catwoman character? Because we've okay. we've spoken a lot since the New Fifty Two especially launched, and the depiction of of her in the New Fifty Two um, is she a character that you like, and how have you b- been observing her progress in the in the last two years or so? I did read a few of the issues, and I. I think that it's weird. I I think that she has generally, to me at least, she's she's felt the same to me. Like her character, um, I'm I'm finding that she she has the you know she seems unchanged. I don't know if she's supposed to have changed, but she seems like the same character that that we've read about um, you know before the New Fifty Two. And um, I haven't really read anything, you know, in the last, I want to say, like, six uh, to eight months. Mm-hmm. Uh, is she a character that you, that you, you're not very, you're, you haven't really delved into her before, though? No, and I, I think it's because, at least in my mind, while she's intriguing and, and while she's, um, she's really likable, because she's sort of um, kind of the anti-hero, uh, I, I didn't find her as complex as, as some of the other, you know, Gotham characters. Sure. Well, while we're on that sort of front, we all had a lot of problems with the way they were depicting Catwoman with the artwork and then sometimes yeah. the, the marriage between the words and pictures. Uh, and I always wonder about that distance. For instance, I've been reading uh, World's Finest since it came back out again, where you had a two very strong lead female characters, uh, very classic sort of art by George Perez, Kevin McGuire, and that sort of story by Paul Levitz. And the art has now changed to very posy, semi-naked, you know, girly-looking things. Uh, how does that dissonance affect an audience and their perception of superheroines in general? Um, I'm, I'm one of those people that, you know, I will honestly say that when I open a comic book, I expect um, fiction, I expect fantasy, I, I expect to escape, you know, as much as, you know, I guess in the last half hour or so, we've been talking about the realism of the characters and how I'm drawing into very real psychological themes. But um, in terms of um, in terms of the art, in terms of the aesthetics of it, I, I still am reading comic books to escape. And the the uh, physique, you know, of, of the women and the men um, that doesn't bother me as much because I have, it's, it's the agreement that I have with the writers and the creators and the artists that, that this is fantasy. And so I expect that that part might be unrealistic and I'm, I'm actually okay with that. Okay. All right, Steve. Uh, yeah, I got one. Let's see. Uh, okay. Is there any, uh, one comic book character that you feel that you identify with personally? Like, is there one? Is there one that you feel uh, suits your your background, or just the way you grew up, or you wanted to be like growing up? That's a great question. I got good um, ones. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I I think that you know, 
it's not I'll say funny enough I'll say Batman and it's not because I feel like like you know I, I my parents yeah, didn't die do. when I was young I certainly <laughs> did not have this like really tragic upbringing um, but he's always fighting and he's always um, you know trying to better himself and he lives in a world where he sees very very dark things and he acknowledges that and he knows that he can incrementally um, help and I, I think that's very inspiring I think you know with each um, strike at him with each blow with each um, with each threat with each trauma he still gets up um, the next day and you know we see him patch up his wounds and he does some push-ups and then he you know <laughs> goes and fights and I think that's um, that is really inspiring I think that that is what is um, to me really heroic about him mm. Absolutely, absolutely. I feel the same way when I look in the mirror. Every day. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Stephanie. I just wanted to ask sort of a more general question. I mean, obviously you're a big comic book fan. Um, what comics outside of, you know, Batman and Batgirl do you read on a regular basis? Or ones that you grew up with and really, you know, got you into this world? When, well, when I was growing up, I was, I was like an Archie comic fanatic. Uh, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I don't care that people think that Archie Comics is like the gateway drug to like <laughs> superhero comics. Um, it was for me. It was you know it was the marijuana to the cocaine, if you will. <laughs> um, and and I think that I think that's okay. You know, other people were drawn to something else before. Um, superheroes and some people, you know, their very first comic book was a superhero comic book. Um, I'm, you know, I'm also, I'm, I'm not just a comic book reader. I also am a, a big fan of um, literature and, and film and TV series. And um, I, I wish, I wish that I had more time, really, to. I just want to quit my job and just read comic books and watch movies, <laughs> of course, like everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, but it gets down to that idea that we can't, you know, go circling back to that whole uh, inauthentic nerd, you know, we can't know about everything and every series and every comic and every genre, um, but we try to, right? We're trying to acquire all this information, but I've not met a single person that knows every single genre and every single, you know, um, uh, geek, I guess, um, fandom uh, to where there's sort of this walking encyclopedia. Some people are very close, but that's really not the typical geek, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Alan Kessler. He's pretty close to that. <laughs> he does know his comic books, yeah. He does. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, it's overwhelming. It's kind of like you want to know everything, you want to absorb everything, and sometimes I just sit at home and I'm like, I'm never going to get to everything <laughs> I want in my life. Like, <laughs> it's too much. It's too frustrating. <laughs> Even if we all quit our jobs, there's still too much. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, Andrea, we've taken up uh, more than enough of your time. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. The The site is underthemaskonline.com. Where can people get in touch with you as far as Twitter and anywhere else they can find your work? I, the best way to interact with me and ask me questions and chat is actually Twitter. My handle is at Arkham Asylum Doc. Uh, that's D-O-C at the end. And um, my contact information is also on underthemaskonline.com. Thank you again, Andrea, so much for joining us. 
uh, on Women in Comics Week. So for Andrea, Steve, Bob, and Stephanie, until next time on Talking Comics, to be continued. Continued.